Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 6, Episode 13. Last week, I covered the Hivites, mentioned in Deuteronomy 7. Related to them are the Gibeonites, who I also went in depth on. If you missed that episode, you should really go back and give it a listen. This week, I'm picking up at the beginning of Deuteronomy 7 and pressing forward. And with that, let's get started. After the list of all the different people at the beginning of chapter 7, there really isn't anything new. But towards the end, there is a curiosity, and that's found in verse 20, where it reads, The Lord your God will send pestilence against them, until even the survivors and the fugitives are destroyed. The curious part can be found in the footnote, where we're told that the word pestilence can be alternatively interpreted as hornets. And given recent events, this made me think of the so-called murder hornet, which is less sensationally known as the Asian giant hornet. And just for clarity, where a whopping total of two such insects were seen in Washington state, late last year, and one of these was already dead. So, nowhere near an onslaught, but still noteworthy. Besides these mentions in the Pentateuch, pestilence makes another appearance in the biblical text, this time in the last book, the Revelation, as the first horseman of the apocalypse, at least in some interpretations. And note, I did not say translations, as those, especially concerning the first horsemen, are rather ambiguous. In the New Revised Standard, it reads, I looked, and there was a white horse. Its rider had a bow. A crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. And with this ambiguity comes multiple interpretations, one of which holds that this rider is named for what he brings with him, pestilence meaning, at least in this case, infectious disease, maybe the plague. The first mention of this interpretation, at least that I could find, is from 1906 and is in the Jewish Encyclopedia. This was expanded on by early 20th century Spanish novelist Vincente Blasco Ibanez in his 1916 novel The Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse, where he wrote, the horseman on the white horse was clad in a showy and barbarous attire. While his horse continued galloping, he was bending his bow in order to spread pestilence abroad. At his back swung the brass quiver, filled with poisoned arrows containing the germs of all diseases. His book was turned into two movies by the same name, one released in 1921, and the more well-known, at least to modern audiences, released in 1962 and set in the European theater of World War II. And that's enough about pestilence, at least for now. And since other than that, there really isn't anything new in this chapter, I'll move along to chapter 8. The chapter begins with the continuation of 7, with Moses reminding the Israelites to rely and remember God, even in times of prosperity. There's more to it, but this episode is running a bit long, so I'll save that for next week. Chapter 8 also includes Moses telling the people that after entering the Promised Land, they will build fine houses there. 
which likely meant something different to them than it does to us. It does, though, allow me to address what the average house was like in the ancient society. Many of these were four-room buildings constructed of mud and stone, the mix between the two largely dependent on the materials found nearby. And these four rooms were essentially sections within the construction, and calling it a room can, in many instances, be a bit misleading, as one of these may have been an uncovered courtyard. As you would be correct in suspecting, having four rooms was not set in stone, but was a general assumption. Many had two, three, or five rooms, and there was a great deal of variability between houses. No duplicated McMansions here. But, similar to what has been true throughout human history, the largest variation in size and design was likely correlated with the economic status of the resident. The wealthier you were, the larger your house. And, these houses were unlike the previous Canaanite houses, especially in terms of the layout. The traditional Canaanite house required passing from room to room. Essentially, and maybe a better description, is that the rooms were laid out in series, in a linear row. To go from room 1 to 3 required passage through room 2. The houses built after the Israelites conquered Canaan were laid out differently, with different rooms built around the perimeter of a larger, central room. This room is commonly called a boardroom, and was usually found on the back side of the house. The other three rooms were each on three of the four walls of the larger room. So, all rooms were accessible without passing through another. Other than a new culture arriving on the scene, there's no conclusive reasoning as to why the change in style. These houses were usually between 30 and 40 feet long, so 10 to 12 meters, and 26 to 30 feet, 8 to 10 meters wide. This would make the footprint between about 800 and 1,200 square feet, so 80 to 120 meters. On the small side by our modern, suburban standards, but still larger than I had imagined, especially in a pre-industrial revolution agricultural society. When found in an ancient, urban setting, houses tended to share walls with neighboring structures, and sometimes the back wall of the boardroom would be part of the city's defensive walls. This allowed the front of the house to face a city street. If it wasn't part of a defensive wall, the walls of the house tended to be about three feet, one meter thick, made of fill stones with the gaps filled with dried mud. Mud that likely included straw for strength. The fiberglass of the day. On the exterior, especially in the wetter regions, the walls may have been plastered to better resist the seasonal rains. The plaster was likely from limestone fired in a kiln. Inside, the floors were either dirt or flagstone. This, too, isn't surprising, as even as late as the mid-20th century, my great-grandmother lived in a house with a dirt floor, one she would sweep every day. If these ancient houses did have a stone floor, ash and clay would be packed between the flat, but irregularly shaped stones to hold them in place. In those that were multi-level, in many cases, the lower rooms were used for storage and livestock, and the living levels were above. 
Sometimes a larger room would be subdivided into a living area and a sleeping area. In many cases, the division was with several wood pillars, but only where wood was available. Otherwise, something else was used, likely hung cloth or hide. In the region, these houses first sprang up around the 11th century BC, which was about the time the Israelites were crossing the Jordan. The style would remain in use for the next 500 or so years, until the beginning of the Babylonian captivity. So, in Deuteronomy, when Moses spoke of fine houses, this is likely what the people thought of. And that's it for their houses and chapter 8 of the text. The very first verse of chapter 9 mentions the forthcoming crossing of the Jordan River, and was a stark reminder to me that, despite being over four years into the podcast, I haven't yet covered what is the most famous of biblical rivers, and maybe the most well-known body of water in the Bible. The only other one that may come close is the Sea of Galilee, which I covered over three years ago in chapter 2, episode 34. Honestly, when I ran across the mention of the Jordan at the beginning of Deuteronomy 9, I literally said to myself, I'm certain I've covered it, but in digging through all of the summaries and keywords, then text, I found I had not. So obvious it slipped by. I'll take the remainder of this episode to correct that oversight. The Jordan River is essentially two different rivers. First is north of the Sea of Galilee and flows to the south into that sea. The second flows from the south side of the sea and eventually makes it further south to the Dead Sea. Most biblical references to the river are about the southern portion. It was in this section that Jacob crossed when returning from his uncle Laban in Genesis 32. It was also here that the Israelites would eventually cross when finally entering the Promised Land. In the New Testament, John the Baptist was doing what he was named for here, which of course means that it was in this portion of the river that Jesus was baptized. And as noted in John 1, near the city of Bethany, I'll get to the history and everything else about the lower portion in a few minutes, after covering the lesser spoken of northern. The northern portion runs about 63 miles, 100 kilometers from its source, where it's fed by four separate rivers whose names I'll spare you. Do note that three of the four tributaries originate around Mount Hermon. So, like I've mentioned several times now, the snow that falls on Hermon, much of it ends up in the Jordan, and therefore also in the Sea of Galilee, and eventually the Dead Sea. The first 47 miles of the Upper Jordan are north of what was once the swampy Lake Hula. This lake existed through about 1950, when it was drained in order to turn it into rich agricultural land. And given that it was drained in the last century, for the purposes of this podcast on history, it existed much throughout the history of the region. I'll get to the lake itself in a few minutes. As the river flows from the northern reaches and owing to the steep decline in its course as it exited Lake Hula, it picked up speed. And with the speed of water, it also picked up silt. But then it would enter the Sea of Galilee and essentially stop flowing. And all of that silt would drop out of suspension and fall to the bottom of the lake, 
well, C. As the northern Jordan flows, it passes through what is known as the Hula Valley, a place named after the lake instead of the river, which is opposite of the naming convention of the southern part of the river, the part that flows from the Sea of Galilee to the Dead Sea. It passes through the Jordan Valley. I'll get to that region in the next episode. For now, let's dive into Lake Hula and the like-named valley. The Hula Valley is a region in what is today northern Israel. It's known, and has been throughout recorded history, as an agriculturally abundant region, owing to the Jordan River that flows through it. In the middle of the river's course was the once shallow Lake Hula. Before the lake was drained in the 1950s, it was really small, with a surface area of about 5 square miles, so not quite 14 square kilometers. The actual draining took more than 50 years from planning to completion, but the length of the project owed more to World War I and the constantly shifting governance of the region during the first half of the 20th century. In the wet winters, it would swell, but was even then only 10 feet, 3 meters deep. In the dry summers, the depth was nearly cut in half to 5 feet, about 1.5 meters, so, in reality, just as much of a swamp or marsh as a lake. Owing to this, along with the warm environment, you had the pest you would naturally suspect, mosquitoes. And with these came malaria. These pests, along with the pressure for more farmland, are what led to its draining. It merited a mention in the 14th century BC Egyptian text, though by a different name. In the biblical text, Lake Hula was known as Merom, and only warranted two mentions, both in Joshua 11. It was here that Joshua defeated an assembly of regional kings, all backed by their various armies. Later, Josephus called it by its Greek name, Semiconidus. It's thought that people first settled here around 8000 BC, as that's how old the oldest artifacts are though it could have been earlier. These artifacts include the remains of fish that were caught in the lake, fish such as catfish, tilapia, and carp, carp that were over three feet, one meter long. Also uncovered were flint tools used to light fires and other tools used to possibly crack native nuts. Most of the history about the northern part of the river is found around the lake, especially that part of the history not associated with any of the surrounding cities. So, I'll concentrate on the lake for now. Of course, at least initially, agriculture reigned supreme here. The usual livestock and crops, but also rice owing to the abundant water supply and climate. And the climate, like that in the neighboring Golan and Mount Hermon, is rather wet, though wetter in the winter. That season is rather cool, and summers are much drier and hotter. Much of this is owed to it being in a valley, one between two high mountain ranges. As the region grew and technology advanced, the area also became a trading center, sitting at the intersection of trade routes that continued on to Damascus, the coast, and Egypt. Cities would pop up in the area, including many of those already covered, cities like Dan, Hazer, and Kedesh. After the Israelites arrived and conquered the Promised Land, 
the Hula Valley would be allotted to the tribe of Naphtali. And they held it until the Neo-Assyrians, led by Tiglath-Pileser III, conquered it in the mid-8th century BC. Meaning that during the period of the Judges, Kings Saul, David, Solomon, and many others, the Israelites maintained at least some control over the Fertile Valley. Overall, the history of the region parallels that of the cities found within it. Israelites, Assyrians, Persians, Greeks, Romans, Byzantines, Muslims, Ottomans, then the French and British following World War I. All of the usual suspects. In the 19th century, the area was inhabited by Bedouins and was explored by a British adventurer, a one John McGregor. He noted that people there did not live long lives, likely attributable to the inherent malaria. He also documented the native wildlife that included panthers, leopards, bears, wild boars, wolves, foxes, jackals, hyenas, gazelles, and otters, all dependent on the lake and the river's water. It's also not surprising, as the same things that tend to attract agriculture do the same for wildlife. McGregor, while there, charted the first modern maps of the area. Then, in the 20th century, after the lake was drained, it became apparent that the several native species suffered immensely. About the same time, malaria, a disease caused by a parasite, became much more treatable. And there were other consequences. The farmland surrounding the lake used to drain into it, bringing whatever runoff with it, runoff that included biological waste and fertilizer. Now that runoff was heading downstream, directly into the Sea of Galilee. So, only five years after the lake was drained, a smaller version was recreated as a nature preserve. Later, in the early 1990s, and due to heavy rains, much of the former lake's area flooded again. After this, it was left intact, this time as a park named after the lake. Since that time, migrating birds have used it as a stopover point. Birds that include more than 10,000 cranes that migrate seasonally from Finland to Ethiopia. Also because of this, a frog once considered extinct, the Hula painted frog, has reappeared. And that's it for the Northern Jordan River. Of course, it enters, then exits the Sea of Galilee, which I've mentioned many times and covered quite a while ago. So, I'll just proceed downstream to the Lower Jordan River, which is, of course, what most people, including the writers of the biblical text, think of when they hear the name. Besides the water flowing from the Sea of Galilee, this part of the river is also supplied with water from the Yarmouk, and Zarka rivers. There are numerous smaller tributaries, from year-round creeks to usually dry wadis to springs. This part of its course runs about 75 miles, 120 kilometers, between the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea. Compared to its northern portion, this section is much flatter, losing only about 700 feet, just over 200 meters, in this entire length. And, in case you're ever asked the question on Jeopardy, it's the lowest river in the world. This is due to the topography, as the Sea of Galilee itself rests nearly 700 feet 
over 200 meters below sea level, and it's all downhill from there. Owing to the small elevation drop, the water flows much slower. Also due to the topography and geology, it tends to be wider and therefore shallower, essentially less of a physical barrier and easier to cross. Which begs the question, how deep was it when Joshua led the Israelite people across it? The narrative of the event can be found in Joshua chapter 3, but it doesn't give us any numerical value. It does imply, though, that they crossed at the time of the harvest, when there was so much water it overflows its banks. But, and likely similar to what happened when they crossed the Red Sea some 40 years earlier, the waters were held back. So, literally speaking, there was no water when they crossed. Trick question. A smaller feat would be repeated by Elijah and Elisha on dry ground in 2 Kings 2. Earlier I covered some of the more well-known mentions of the river in the text. Of course, there are many others. In Judges 7, Gideon would fight the Midianites on the banks of the river. A few chapters later, in Judges 12, the tribes of Ephraim and Gilead, who were descendants of Manasseh, fought each other somewhere along the river. In this case, 42,000 Ephraimites died, along with an untold number of Gileadites. Later, in the Jordan Valley, as recorded in 1 Kings 7, Solomon would build brass foundries near the river. In the next book, 2 Kings chapter 6, logs from a forest in the valley were harvested. As is true in most arid climates, typically the only trees to be found anywhere but up against a river or other sustained water source. The prophet Elisha would perform two miracles at the Jordan, healing Naaman's leprosy in 2 Kings 5 and making an iron axe head float in the next chapter. Of course, it played a role in the New Testament, most notably where Jesus was baptized, and like I mentioned before, this was recorded as being near Bethany. At least the New Revised Standard and NIV say it was this place. The King James records that it happened at the city of Bethabara. Either way, this was just before the river enters the Dead Sea. Though Bethany is several miles to the west of the river, and therefore in the modern country of Israel, Bethabara is much closer to the river and on the east bank, which puts it in the country of Jordan. Near here, Bethabara, are ruins of the purported site, though they are several hundred feet from the current course of the river on a tributary. What does this mean? Likely nothing. I've mentioned so many times that it is becoming a standard refrain, and to keep it that way, I'll repeat it again. We like to be extremely precise in our language. Just think of all the different names we have for different breeds of dogs. But, in earlier forms of earlier languages, especially when most people couldn't read or write, words had more general meanings. Add to that that John didn't just baptize on the day Jesus showed up, but had been doing so for some time. So, he likely moved around as the level of the river changed with the seasons. Take all that together, and you end up with a site that isn't very precise by our modern GPS-influenced standards, but worked just fine for them. 
back to the text. Throughout the Gospels of the New Testament, we see where Jesus performed much of his ministry near the river and in the valley that surrounded it. Outside of the biblical text, the river has been and remains an important source of water for the countries that border it. Though, as the technology has advanced, Israel has become more dependent on desalinating seawater for consumption. And they had to, as they, along with the neighboring countries of Jordan and Syria, have diverted so much of the river's water that the stopping point for the river, the Dead Sea, is shrinking. It's estimated that between 70 and 90 percent of the river's flow is now diverted before reaching the Dead Sea. And that's not the only problem. And similar to the northern portion of the river, pollution is changing it too. Pollution from both agricultural runoff and raw sewage flowing into it. So much that the lower portion, where Jesus was recorded as being baptized, is essentially off-limits to people. Those modern people who are baptized in the river are dunked in the first couple of miles south of the Sea of Galilee, 70-plus miles north of where John did his baptizing. Though it is worth noting that in years past, many European royals have used water from the river for the baptisms of their children. Royals such as the British toddler Prince George of Cambridge. Traveling back in time further, in 1717, while she was an infant, the Austro-Hungarian Empress Maria Theresa was baptized in Vienna by a representative of Pope Clement XI with baptismal water containing a few drops from the Jordan. Also, the 20th century King of Bulgaria, Simeon II, was baptized in a similar manner. I couldn't find any record of what part of the Jordan that water came from. And that provides me with a good stopping point for this week's episode. Join me next week when I'll pick up with the Greater Jordan Valley. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening and have a great week.